This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Driving along Interstate 35 in Kansas can feel like a dream. Endless green fields and pastures stretch out from the turnpike in all directions. It's a beautiful, almost mesmerizing kind of monotony. You can drive for hours and feel like you're in the same place. God's country, America's heartland. But like any dream, it has to end sometime. The moment Joe Johnson heard the siren, he knew it was all over. There would be no getting out of this one. Not this time. This was a screw-up of epic proportions. And like a film reel, the mistakes leading up to this moment flickered through Joe's mind as a cop approached his window. For starters, he probably shouldn't have tried to drive 1,200 miles in a straight shot with no sleep. He shouldn't have gotten hopped up on cocaine and Red Bull. He shouldn't have allowed his gas tank to run nearly empty. And he definitely shouldn't have gotten into a fight with another driver at a filling station yelling, banging on the other guy's window, threatening to pull him out of his car. No, he probably shouldn't have done those things. At least, not with 374 grand, a gun, and 66 pounds of marijuana sitting in the back of his minivan. License and registration. Because here's the thing. This wasn't just about Joe Johnson. His roadside arrest set off a cataclysmic series of events. The raid uprooted a massive drug ring, growing marijuana here, shipping thousands of pounds of it, and netting more than $12 million over the last four years. It was all hiding in plain sight. These 32 people, they're all accused of playing a part in the largest pot bust since marijuana was legalized in our state. In Colorado, weed is legal, but it's not in plenty of other states, creating opportunities involving great risk and even greater rewards. The rewards are so tempting that in Denver, a group of college friends carried out a brazen scheme. Sour diesel, green crack, strawberry cough. I would say there was probably 10 to 15 different strains at any given time. They cultivated weed in huge, seemingly legitimate warehouses, while actually... They had their system set up to where it's not going to a dispensary. It also wasn't staying within the state. So where was it going? Over the next eight episodes, the story behind a case... It was kind of one of those things too, where it was like, maybe the less you know, the better. ...that redefined what it means to be a criminal organization in the era of legal weed. This was the biggest scam I have ever seen. It was so obviously a scam. My name is Chris Walker. I'm a journalist. And for years, I've been investigating this group's rise and fall. That's involved chasing down drug mules. Flying into town, cocaine, girls, booze. You know, I mean, we're exchanging half a million dollars at a time. The detectives who doggedly pursued them. By just pure statistics, you can see the black market has exploded. And a cannabis kingpin who took advantage of loopholes in Colorado's medical marijuana laws, all the while keeping his organization afloat in the face of rivalries, robberies, explosions, and spies. 
because by the end of this group's run in the black market, it had forever changed the ways that states, law enforcement agencies, and the cannabis industry combat the underground economy. From Foxipus Inc. and Imperative Entertainment, welcome to The Syndicate. There are a lot of moving parts to this case. The origin story of this smuggling group goes back decades and spans continents. Throughout its reign on the black market, it involved dozens of individuals. Each played an important and unique role. Still, no individual helped the enterprise reach such heights, raking in millions a month, and also sealed its fate, quite like Joe Johnson. And just what was he doing with all that cash and pot in his car? Well, the truth is Joe wasn't supposed to be on the road to begin with. A key member of the conspiracy is Joseph Johnson. His out-of-state company, Westside Skydiving, allegedly flew more than 1,500 pounds of marijuana and more than $2 million in cash. You see, Joe was a pilot, and usually he flew his pot through the sky. And these guys were bold, accused of using skydiving planes and cars to traffic tens of thousands of pounds of pot out of state. Yeah, she said skydiving. Joe Johnson was a legend in that world. With more than 15,000 jumps under his chute, he went by the nickname Jumpin' Joe. He has a whole look to go along with it too. Bald, tattoos running up both arms, fit with veins popping out around his temples. He almost looks like a skydiving Vin Diesel. Since 2010, he's owned multiple jump zones around the country and once dominated the skydiving market in Minneapolis. But how did such a freefall icon turn into a drug smuggler? Well, as Joe explains it, skydiving and the narcotics trade are more interconnected than you might think. And for Joe, it began in Minnesota. Uh, I grew up in Chisago Lakes, Lindstrom area, Minnesota. In his 20s, Joe worked construction, swinging a hammer 12 to 14 hours a day. He remembers working so much that he had no time for hobbies until one year. The spring of uh, 2000, my wife bought me my first jump for my birthday. It was meant as a fun, bucket list item kind of gift. But for Joe, skydiving was life-changing. He wasn't just hooked. One jump turned into 100 in his first year alone. Then he got a job in the industry. And then in 2010, I started my first drop zone, Westside Skydivers. Joe opened Westside Skydivers near the Twin Cities with just one little Cessna 182. That's a four-seater plane with a single engine. And then in, in as little as three years, we took the lead in the Minneapolis-St. Paul market. But given the types of thrill-seekers that skydiving attracts, Joe soon discovered a darker side to the industry. From the very beginning, Joe tells me there were offers, sketchy offers. Even you know before I started, um, my own place in 2010, I had made some friends and acquaintances in the industry. And I knew, you know, that they smoked marijuana and that they might be in the business, so to speak. Joe's referring to smuggling. And perhaps it's not so surprising that in a line of work where you throw human cargo out of planes, some might risk carrying other types of cargo, too. In fact, it's almost assumed. I was approached by a couple of different people pretty much from day one, you know, like, hey, you know, how about we use your airplane to fly out to Colorado and bring something back? Joe's an animated talker, 
You can hear his nylon jacket swishing around as he gestures. And it took him three years of asking me before I said yes. What was the motivation there? Were you thinking this was going to be like a one-time thing? You know, to be honest with you, I don't know. I mean, I think it was just the, the excitement, the thought of all this extra money. It was a friend named Alex that finally convinced Joe to smuggle pot from Colorado into Minnesota, a state where weed was very much illegal. At the time, Joe only had 50 hours of training on his student's pilot license. He barely knew how to fly. But no matter, that didn't deter him. I had my pilot check me out in my 182. I did four laps around the patch. He said, looks really good. So I taxied up, fueled up, and I flew to Boulder, Colorado. <laughs> what they say is true. Takeoffs are much easier than landings. Once Joe was in the air, he felt pretty good about flying 10 times further than he ever had. Just keep the plane steady, avoid ominous clouds, and be sure you're good on, uh-oh. Start to run out of gas. Joe had let the tank run so low, which appears to be a trend for him, that he wasn't sure the props would keep spinning before he hit the ground. So I call an emergency landing and end up doing a go around while I'm running out of gas <laughs> and finally, <laughs> finally get the airplane on the ground. The plane was running on fumes. And, um, <clears throat> managed to taxi over to the fuel pump, so I didn't officially run out of gas, but I had less than a gallon aside. Most people at this point would be thinking, man, this is stupid. What the hell am I doing? Not Joe. Well, I was, at that point, I was just trying to get the airplane on the ground. So I fueled up, had breakfast, um, took a deep breath, then I uh, went from Greeley to Boulder, which is just a hopscotch jump over met with my friends and had a good night and then fucking got back in the airplane with my package. The package, as Joe puts it, was multiple duffel bags stuffed to the gills with weed. And this wasn't your parents' pot. It was that dank Colorado stuff everyone always talked about, that sticky Rocky Mountain high. Joe loaded the pot right next to the runway at Boulder's Municipal Airfield. It was a tight fit. With so little compartment space in his Cessna, the bags occupied the three other available seats in the cockpit. On one hand, it seemed crazy to just pile the duffel bags on top of each other, unconcealed, right out in the open. But in the 12 years he'd been skydiving, Joe had never seen anything approaching the kind of TSA hassles at a commercial airport. Even today, all the municipal airports are just so porous and so under-patrolled. At best, the occasional security guard might putter by on a golf cart. No one bothered him. Joe's heart didn't start beating fast again until he lifted off, this time with the plane compartment brimming with duffel bags. He hoped the second half of his trip would be less eventful, but... My radio went, went out, so I lost communication with people on, on the way back. And I'm a brand new pilot, student pilot. <laughs> so I flew through an MOA, uh, military operating area, and uh, didn't know it. But control towers on the ground knew it. What was this little single prop doing flying through a military zone? And so they were like trying to call me to make sure everything was okay, and they couldn't get a hold of me. So, so I land for fuel at an airport in uh, South Dakota, and sitting there, I have my package in the back of the airplane, and I'm getting fuel, and a squad rolls through the parking lot. The squad car had been dispatched by the local police department to check in on this mysterious airplane. Joe played it cool. He just keeps on rolling through and, uh, you know, hey, 
And at that point, I'm like, you're sweating a little bit at the same time, you know. I'm just out flying my little, my personal 182, you know. Yeah, he just wanted to make sure I was okay. The patrolman waved at Joe, but didn't come any closer to inspect the inside of the plane. Joe hastily returned to Minneapolis. He couldn't believe his luck. But if you think he might reconsider doing another smuggle after two close calls, he wasn't nearly spooked enough to stop. In fact, the close calls were part of the thrill. One thing led to another. Uh, one run led to another run. And the smuggles kept getting bigger. In the end game, after I got into it, was to squirrel enough cash away to pay cash for a couple of caravans and be debt free, you know. Caravans are a type of twin prop aircraft manufactured by Cessna. They can fit up to 10 passengers in the back. How much do those planes cost? Anywhere from 800 to a million dollars. Okay, Joe wanted to earn a couple mil, buy some planes, and then fly softly away into the night. So yes, part of it was about the money. If you can get past the illegal nature of his plan, it at least seems reasonable, right? Except Joe didn't anticipate all the other ways he'd get sucked in. It would be like that line from The Godfather Part 3. Just when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in. Or as Joe puts it. And once you're in it, it's a fucking blur, dude. <laughs> Especially once he became involved with a bunch of outlaws growing pot in Colorado. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. Joe may have played a crucial role flying pot for the group, moving thousands of pounds of product through the skies, but even before Joe's involvement, his co-conspirators had already done something that no one thought would happen. They became some of the biggest black market marijuana growers in the country. Unlike foreign cartels, this group was made in America. And as I mentioned earlier, I know the full scope of the story because I'd been looking into it for years. As a reporter, I specialize in long-form journalism. Assignments have taken me to look for missing climbers in Argentina, investigate a murder mystery in Mexico, and embed with an armed anti-government militia in Southern Colorado. I'm always on the lookout for stories with high stakes and larger-than-life characters. And I first heard about this multi-million dollar pot bust while working at Denver's alternative newspaper, Westward. Our conservative estimates are that they laundered millions of dollars in illegal drug sales, approximately $12 million, and up to 400 pounds of marijuana a month. That was then Attorney General of Colorado, Cynthia Kaufman, speaking about the marijuana bust before dozens of reporters in March 2015. At a press conference, 
She revealed the names of the individuals allegedly involved with this drug trafficking scheme, but she didn't have a name for the group. It didn't even have a nickname, which had actually helped keep it off law enforcement's radar. As far as I'm concerned, that was a lost opportunity, one that I'm going to jump on. From here on out, I'm going to call them the Syndicate. During the Syndicate's four-year smuggling run, more than 40 people grew and distributed illegal pot out of Denver. Within hours of the press conference, news of the bus made headlines around the country, not least of which because the story involved skydivers, illegal cash, bales of pot, and SWAT raids. But ground up and sprinkled into the story of the Syndicate were serious questions about cannabis legalization in the United States and how legal pot in one state can alter the market for weed in the states next door. Remember, Colorado was the first state to legalize recreational weed in 2012. It seemed that every six months, a new report would come out showing marijuana sales exceeding everyone's wildest expectations. Colorado has raked in more than half a billion dollars in revenue from recreational marijuana. In 2019, that tax revenue passed $1 billion, boosting state funds for education, public health, and somewhat ironically, drug use prevention. I wondered, why would anyone in Colorado choose to deal in the black market when it seemed the legal industry was thriving? In many places, it's almost easy to forget that pot is still illegal at the federal level. So how is it that we can have cancer patients using medicine in one state, but they can be arrested if they cross borders with weed into a less permissive jurisdiction? Even in states like Colorado, the entire cannabis industry is rooted in practices that were considered illegal just two decades ago. So how do we contend with such rapid change? And what new opportunities do the shifting cannabis laws create for people who don't want to play by the rules? I had all these questions ringing through my mind. But even so, I faced a conflicting feeling, at least initially. Although weed continues to pose lots of complications, it also, especially recently, seems like it shouldn't be such a big deal. It cuts to the heart of a shifting cultural attitude. Marijuana, basically catnip for people. It has gained increasing acceptance in recent years. In fact, one small bright spot on election night was pro-marijuana referenda passing in eight states. It's official! A big win for lovers of weed. Even after all the turmoil in the 2016 presidential election, comedian John Oliver highlighted how marijuana legalization had advanced around the country. Fast forward to today, and marijuana is legal for recreational use in 11 states. Anyone over 21 in those states can walk into a dispensary and buy some ganja. It's legal for medical use in 33 states. Chances are, you know someone who uses pot for medical purposes, like alleviating pain, nausea, and seizures. And even as weed remains illegal at the federal level, you can see a multi-billion dollar industry spreading its roots, leading to all sorts of new products and crazes. When I go down to my local coffee shop here and I see that they're trying to sell me 10 milligrams of CBD for five bucks in my coffee, I mean, that's a trend. That's Kayvon Kalabari. He opened one of the first medical marijuana dispensaries in Denver in 2010. And if anyone can appreciate the sea change in the country's attitude towards pot, it's Kalabari. You did some small time dealing like way back in the day in Nebraska, right? Yes, you know, similar to 
I mean, I've been living on my own since I was 16. My, my family had uh, huge financial troubles with my dad putting us in bankruptcy twice. And I, I hustled. I, I worked full time at a restaurant. I went to school full time and I sold cannabis on the side. And that was my way of living and paying for rent. I would say there's probably only um, a two or three year period cut up in there in the last 21 years of my life where I haven't sold cannabis in some form. But law enforcement never wised up to Kalabari's dealing. And after he moved to Colorado, voters approved medical marijuana and he opened a dispensary in Denver. Do you feel lucky that you were able to make the transition into the legal industry? I mean, there's so many people who weren't able to do that. I'm very fortunate and I understand that privilege. It's incumbent on these operators today to understand that they have this really amazing opportunity only because of this illicit market carrying forward um, for the last 80 years um, for these activists and advocates, not just myself, but tens of thousands of others across the country that have fought uh, for this decrim and then legalization and this regulated model. And when you look at broad support across this country being well over 90% for medical use cannabis mm -hmm. and now over 60% for adult use cannabis. I think it's over two thirds. Yeah. yeah. So over two thirds now for adult use cannabis. I mean, that's a sign that if you're a Republican or a Democrat, you have to face up to the fact that your constituents want this around. All of which is to say the genie's out of the bottle now. Pot is here to stay. We're well past the days of the devil's lettuce. And some say nationwide legalization could happen within the next few years. So given all that, again, should a pot bust even get this much attention? It's just marijuana, right? That was certainly the attitude of a lot of people who became involved with the syndicate. They knew that what they were doing was illegal, but this wasn't as bad as the really serious stuff. You know, cocaine, heroin, fentanyl, meth. How much trouble could they really get in? But once I decided to look into this case, I saw a surprising pattern. Turns out, weed was a gateway into a different kind of addiction. The taste of the danger that came with the outlaw life was its own high. It was the same pull Joe felt when he did his first smuggling run, despite nearly crashing and getting caught. Something about it made him feel so alive, like he was giving himself over to this wild world. I didn't quite understand the nature of that thrill until I made my own trip down to Texas. Chris, all the way from Denver, Colorado. How you doing, brother? It's a Thursday morning in the Lone Star State, and I'm crammed with five others into the back of a Cessna, climbing above the plains at a steep angle. I'm about to tandem jump out of an airplane with Joe. Before this trip to see him in fall 2019, he and I had only talked by phone. But for our first in-person meeting, he's offered to take me skydiving before we, pardon the pun, jump into our interview. I'm still not sure why he's even talking to me. Seeing as how he's one of the most prolific drug smugglers of the past decade, don't think it hasn't crossed my mind how easy it would be to dispatch a nosy journalist through some fluke, quote, accident. You know, perhaps a loose strap or a faulty harness. But part of this is about trust. What better way to get Joe to share his story than by putting my life in his hands? I also want a taste of the adrenaline rush that gets Joe Johnson's blood pumping. 
The rush of hurtling towards the earth thousands upon thousands of times, and the thrill of breaking the law. Maybe by jumping with him, I can get just a hint of that high, and perhaps begin to understand why he became a skydiving drug smuggler. And since I'm not about to break the law myself, I'll settle for testing gravity. I figure we're close to leveling off at 14,000 feet when I feel him tighten the straps holding us together. Joe's gonna be handling the chute and pretty much everything else too. We're way out in the middle of the Texas Plains, roughly between San Antonio, Houston, and Austin, where Joe owns a jump zone called Skydive Lone Star. But I can see that's way, way below us now when another skydiver slides the plane's door open and wind rushes into the cabin. Just like that, he disappears. Joe and I start to make our own way down a bench. We scoot forward until we're in the doorway, nothing separating us from the big empty sky. Sensory overload. I only have time for one deep breath, and then Joe hurdles us into the void. When you've got nothing around you, accelerating 32.2 feet per second every second, the intensity of freefall, of being a body in motion, moving faster than you ever knew was possible, almost comes as a shock to the system. It's like reaching the adrenaline junkie's nirvana, this sublime plane of thrill. But almost as soon as I reach it, It's over. Oh man, that was awesome. <laughs> Joe deploys the chute and suddenly all is peaceful. We drift downwards and he steers us into a cloud. It's beautiful. And it occurs to me, there's something important in this moment too. Relief. Like the relief you just did something totally crazy and got away with it. Life and limbs intact and most importantly, a chance to chase the same thrill again. I realize that there must be a similar sensation with drug smuggling, that there's the pure exhilaration of risking it all, then relief every time you've successfully pulled off another operation, ratcheting up the risk and thrill until... Joe gives me a high five. He starts gathering the parachute as soon as we've picked ourselves off the ground. I'd barely notice the hard landing. My whole body still jitters from the jump. It's not nerves. It's something more euphoric. I can see why you'd want to do something that seems totally insane, only to want to take it up a notch. The adrenaline, the thrill, it's what members of the syndicate describe over and over as they try to convey how they got in and why they stayed even when things got so out of hand. Using their stories and recollections, I'm gonna tell you about a world with its own set of rules, a world of big money and even bigger risks. Much of it will defy logic, but as you'll soon find out, even that is part of the rush. Or as Joe likes to say, It's fucking crazy, dude. <laughs> In season one of The Syndicate, you'll meet the outlaws, 
DEA agents, and hard-boiled detectives who all played a role in one of the most significant drug cases in U.S. history. We'll get into all those sticky marijuana topics, with insights from a drug historian, a hippie mafioso, and the lawyer who wrote Colorado's marijuana law. And you'll hear snippets of previously unreleased interrogation recordings. They'll all reveal a true tale, and not just of skydiving drug mules, but also an exploding hash lab. And then he moved because he almost blew up his house. DEA moles. And uh, they requested that I, I would wear a wire. SWAT raids. One of the most horrifying, if not the most horrifying day of my life. Hidden cash. Fast times and fast cars. Man, did I get to have some fun and do some life experiences that not many people in the world get to experience? Hell yeah, I did. And we'll learn about the diverse personalities and motivations of the syndicate's members, including its enigmatic kingpin. He's not scared. He's a tough guy. You know what I mean? He would have he gone toe-to-toe with me, twice his size. And no one predicted how it would all implode, taking down not just the syndicate, but exposing an uncomfortable truth that the black market isn't just evolving in the era of legal weed, it's thriving. The Syndicate is a co-production of Imperative Entertainment and Foxpus Inc. Executive producer is Jason Hoke. Produced and edited by Laura Krantz and Scott Carney. The Syndicate is scored and mixed by Louis Weeks. I'm your host and creator, Chris Walker. This podcast was made possible in part by the Fund for Investigative Journalism. Special thanks to Patricia Calhoun and Michael Roberts at Westward. Visit thesyndicatepodcast.com for more about this story. And don't forget to tell your friends about The Syndicate. If you're enjoying it, please leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps more people find out about our show. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.